What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast, where we discuss all things historical, philosophical, mythological, understanding where and how and when they intersect with our popular culture and our mainstream storytelling. As always, if you can't tell, I'm very, very excited to be here Derek, for another week. are you excited week. to be here? I am so excited. And you know why I'm excited? Because we are going to be talking about one of the great works of television of the aughts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I would say the aughts, maybe ever, maybe aughts okay. plus the, the tens. Plus the teens. The, yeah. The tens or teens. However, I don't understand how we haven't determined how we're going to classify the area from 2007 from 2015, but that's the era that we're going to be talking about. So what pray tell will be the midnight myth subject and focus for debate and discussion. This week, we are going to be talking about the AMC super hit Mad Men. Now, I realize that this isn't as topical as some of our other subjects, as the Mad Men's not really in the cultural eye. It ended in 2015. Here we are in 2019. However, I kind of missed the boat on Mad Men. I didn't watch it when it was out. I caught some episodes here and there, and I thought, wow, this seems really smart and cool but I never really connected it. Since then, Laurel and I have gone back and watched the entire season together from start to finish every single episode, and we knew at the end that we had to podcast about it. And Mad Men is a show that isn't short on literature, discussion, and debate. Right. There's tons of information out there. There's a lot of people talking about this show, even today, four years after it ended, and the show was sort of a marquee moment where we were admitting that we're in a relative renaissance of network television, really breaking boundaries, doing risks, putting money and effort and time and talent in television like they had not really done before. A continuation of the tradition, I would say, of like The Sopranos. Um, that has gotten us to this point where TV is some of the most innovative, smart, fun media. And today we're going to talk Mad Men. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk Mad Men because, like you said, we just finished up a watch slash rewatch of the entire series. And what is so fascinating about it as a period drama, as a piece of historical fiction, or, you know, a pastiche of the 60s, this is a show 
that gives us a period of history, a timeline of history that is absolutely uh, relevant and applicable to our times today. So it is a show that invested a lot of time and energy in character development in broad character arcs. Uh, and most of the greatness that came out of the show was what it did with character uh, and change over time through a, a period of social and historical upheaval. Uh, so it's it's awesome to talk about Mad Men and the characters within and what happened to them and what they made happen in a time that also feels just as precarious as the 60s. And that's why this show was made, right? That's why you make period drama that is somehow elevated from just a piece of nostalgia. You make it because by looking back at the past, you can learn something about the present. And that's why we do the Midnight Myth podcast. So that's what's so awesome about talking about Mad Men tonight. So if Mad Men is still on your to-do list, if you haven't made your way through the series yet, we will spoil it. Um, however, this isn't necessarily going to be a purely plot-focused show. Right. But it's better if you have seen Mad Men and seen most, if not all of it. So I recommend it as well because Mad Men is a sort of unique television experience that one should experience on their own. That being said, I'm, I'm ready to kind of dive into the central thesis. But before I do that, Laurel, if people want to reach us post-podcast to keep the conversation going, our amazing and fantastic listeners... How can they do so? Yes. So if you think we got something so right that you have to shout about it, or we got something so wrong that you have to shout at us about it, or if you want to hear more Mad Men podcasts or less Mad Men podcasts in the future, please tweet us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. You can hit us up on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast or on Facebook. We're also over at www.midnightmyth.com where there's a contact form if you want to leave us a lengthy note. And please, if you haven't yet, head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit subscribe so that you can get all the new episodes in your inbox every Sunday evening. And if you haven't yet, make sure you leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Hit five stars, hit four stars, whatever you think you got to do, and write a couple of words about why you like the podcast. So let's, let's jump in here. First thing I'd like to talk about is my general reflection on the series as a whole. One of the questions that I had leaving Mad Men was, what does Mad Men say about American history? Yeah. So it's in start, its narrative focus is a period piece. What do, what do I mean by that? It's inspired by a particular time in American history. Everybody dresses, acts, and speaks in the aesthetic ways and flavor of that time. So it is informed by the 60s into the 70s and era. And especially the visual style of the 60s. But... Most period pieces take it just that far. They are inspired by a period. They want to set this story and narrative in that period, but are fundamentally ahistorical. An example of that is the movie The Witch that came out several years ago that takes place in a colonial America, <clears throat> and it takes that part of me. It takes that time and that flavor, but it never grounds it in any actual real his history. Or if we were to look at a, something that is similar to Mad Men, the musical How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, which also stars the uh, Robert Morse, who plays Burt Cooper on 
Mad Men takes the 60s and uses it as the setting for the musical styles, for the humor, for the social conventions, but is not related at all to uh, the things that form who we are as Americans today, if that makes some sense. Well, I've never seen it and know nothing about it, but sure. <laughs> I'll take that as a given because sure. I trust you implicitly. Yeah. Um, so Mad Men takes a step further in its its relationship to American history because not only is it informed and inspired by a period, it grounds its narrative in actual historical events. As the timeline of the show progresses, it mirrors the timeline in the history in which it's set. In that way, it bleeds, in my view, uh, the genre of just a period piece and also makes it uh, somewhat also a historical fiction. Sure. So then I've asked myself several questions. What's the purpose of historical fiction? Why do we have it? Does it do us any good? The whole idea, I think, on the onset of why historical fiction is a positive phenomenon is that it can take a period, a time, or a place and shine a light on it in a way that was maybe not being shined before the piece or a way that maybe once people talked about but had forgotten that can then inspire people to learn more about the history and the time. Uh, an example of that is the Ridley Scott movie Gladiator. Right. Right. How many people knew who Marcus Aurelius was before that movie? Let's admit that most Americans probably didn't. But because of that movie, they now know there was this Roman emperor named Marcus Aurelius. Mad Men doesn't really fit that mold either, right? It's not really shedding a light on a period that we have forgotten. It's not really bringing to bear new historical figures. No, it's living memory. So what exactly is Mad Men saying about history? What is its relationship in particular to American history? Because Mad Men is many things and many complex things, but the easiest thing that Mad Men is to understand is that it is American. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. No holds barred, unapologetically. This is a show about America. So what's its relationship to history? On the onset, there are several different competing ideas and philosophies about what it means to be a history. And I'd like to highlight one in how I relate to and compare to Mad Men as a historical project. And the first is this idea called the great man theory. And what this theory stipulates is that history is made by great men. It is made by people whose talent, achievements, and charisma bubbled to the surface and they were able to shape major historical events. Now, on a certain level, it kind of seems intuitive. And the reason why I say that, was it not Caesar who made Rome? Right. Right. Was it not Charlemagne who made medieval Europe? Was it not Washington who made America? Clearly, history is written and made and formed by these great individuals. Napoleon, yeah. Was it not Napoleon who made modern Europe? Right. And it also gives us, the consumers of history, really what we want. We want our heroes, the people that we're to aspire to, and the people that we want to emulate. Oh, yeah, it's very much the historiographic version of Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, the hero's journey, the idea that there are, you know, these great heroes who are destined to be great and that they are the ones that we should focus on. Exactly. Well, I, I wouldn't say the great man theory postulates 
predestiny the way the hero's journey does. Sure, right? yeah, but yeah. Because it, it's still a very uh, post-enlightenment, very human thing. But at the end of the day, you, you're not wrong. There are powerful, charismatic, intelligent, capable, in particular men who rise to the top and they shape history. Yeah, right? that's the idea. So why do I bring this up in relation to Mad Men? On a certain easy level, in the same way that the great man theory tends to just make sense, it makes sense that this show is about the great man. Why? Don Draper is in many ways a great man. He is self-made. He is completely wealthy. The brands that he chooses to represent or not represent are the brands that end up shaping the paradigms. We have other surrounded great men and... Uh, I would also say women because the show does emphasize on women, such as Joan Holloway, who is a completely self-motivated, started, you know, starts out thinking that you understand this character is an object for other men to like desire and want to possess, and she ends up running and maining and managing her own company. Yeah. Um then super empowered. Roger Sterling, there is Cooper. There are all of these just incredibly talented, incredibly beautiful, incredibly charismatic, capable um, leaders shaping the advertising agency and advertising industry, pardon me, and, and changing it. So with all of this greatness, well, how does the show choose to interact with history? Instead of interjecting this greatness directly into an American history, it puts all of this greatness in the role of witnesses. Mm-hmm. So yeah. great history is happening around and simultaneously. Um, for example, Don Draper listens to Muhammad Ali win a titleship bout on the radio in a bar while he's drinking. Um, Betty witnesses the death of Lee Harvey Oswald live on television. And these events are not without their importance. They have major impacts on the people. Martin Luther King ends up getting assassinated and it sends a ripple effect through an entire episode of the show. But the most important aspect that we find is not the historical event itself, but it's rather the supporting cast around the historical event. So I'd like to draw into the episode where JFK gets assassinated. Yeah. This episode's called the grownups. November 2nd, 1963. Right. And so we see in this a conflict and congruence to history that happens. So in the conflict, we have a wedding that's happening. Roger Sterling's daughter is being married the day after that JFK gets assassinated. We have a nation in mourning. We have a couple in celebration. These things are diametrically opposed events but yet the wedding continues and the wedding goes on. And the wedding is in doubt a success in its own right, in its own part. Though it's a disaster functionally, it's, a, a, party, yeah. it's a disaster um, for, for Roger. He is emotionally and physically exhausted. His daughter is in tears and tatters. The wedding happens. The marriage happens. The reception happens. To me, this is a symbolism that oftentimes the events that happen in our lives are happening while major historical events happen. At one point, Roger gives a speech, and he gives a speech saying, hey, this day could have been a lot worse, 
And in reality, the adults should be here for the kids. It's the kids' love that pulls us through this. And what that argues is that in the face of these events, what they mean, what they symbolize, their very structured importance really comes down to how we interpret and how we live. So in other words, history is made by those witnessing it. Those that perceive it get to, to, uh, to ascribe its meaning and significance, and based upon that, create the actions around it. Another great example of this is in Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. And in that moment, we see Peggy come to a head with her boyfriend, where her boyfriend wants to go out, and he wants to go to experience everything that's happening out there. While there are sadness, there's riots, there's rage, there's racial tension, and there's two people, one who wants to go out and experience this and one who wants to shut in from this. And that conflict ultimately leads to the, de- the, the complete dissolving and like ending of that relationship. Another point in which history is happening congruently and in conflict to the lives of the characters. So where does this go in terms of the great man theory? Does the great man theory of history actually hold up under scrutiny? Well, if you've studied any academic history, you know it's completely discredited. There's no one out there that actually subscribes to it. And the reason for that is the argument is that there are so many factors of causality of events. So what caused America to rebel against Britain is more complex than George Washington. And what got America over the hump and over the war and into its own nation is also more complex than just George Washington. Though George Washington leaves a huge stamp on those events, he's not the sole reason for them. And though Don Draper leaves a huge stamp on what brand is important or isn't, he's not all powerful in these decisions, albeit he is the most talented ad man there is. What is actually significant is the things happening in the congruency of history. How we interact with the big events that happen and the way we give them meaning and the way we give them importance will reverberate throughout time. And that is ultimately what I think it says about history, is that history is constantly being interpreted, reinterpreted, reexamined, and meaning new things at times. When we are at these junctions where things are a complete and total utter clusterfuck crossroads is the moment where we have the most power to shape what the events mean. I love it. I, you just lay down a lot of big ideas. Sorry. Uh, it's okay. No, don't ever apologize. It's uh, it's huge. What you've just laid out at the beginning of this episode here, because Mad Men's relationship to history is as complex as the characters on Mad Men. But I think you've said something really powerful in that the witnesses are the ones who truly shape history. And uh, when, when I was watching the show and it was, uh, you know, first on, and when I was trying to convince you to watch the show, I think after it had finished airing, uh, one of the things that I remember telling you is, like, my favorite thing about the show is how the characters interact with the real monumental events of history. I love watching the episodes where archival footage is shown where they're watching Walter Cronkite deliver a breaking news address and seeing real people, quote-unquote, quote, real people, even though we're watching figments of someone's imagination interact with these 
these powerful events that shaped American history because I can identify with that as someone who is in a period of time where monumental events have happened. You know, I grew up watching the Twin Towers come down and someday there will be shows about our generation watching that happen on TV. Um, so being the witnesses of history uh, creates as powerful a mosaic of what it means to be American as being the, you know, the, the people in those images that are being displayed across the screen, if that makes any sense. It totally does, because our reaction as a collective society to 9-11 is as much the story of 9-11 as the terrorist attacks. And these are the things that are generation-defining, right? Rather than a, a bracket of years, generations are defined by a shared experience. So there's an entire generation that's shaped by the JFK assassination. And that generation is is the baby boomers, right? The ones who are growing up in the shadow of the main characters of Mad Men. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up The Grown Ups, the episode where this this unfolds, this assassination unfolds, and then the subsequent uh, killing of Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, because this is a turning point in the series for the characters themselves as well as for America. Uh, and a huge part of that turning point in just the shock of someone being bold enough to shoot the president point blank in Dallas and losing someone who we, uh, you know, all had a, a complicated relationship with, whether you were a Catholic at the time and you saw the first Catholic president or you were a Democrat and you were excited about his progressive reforms or you were against him, you had some kind of bond with him, or you were just a housewife who was enamored of how handsome he was, there's nothing that can compare to the sudden shock and loss of that person. And I remember a, um, a you know, I just brought up 9-11, but I remember being in middle school and a teacher of mine uh, trying to relate to us in what we had seen, because we we're so young, we didn't know how to deal with what we had seen. Uh, and my teacher was like, I remember, I'll never forget the feeling of being in class and someone walking in and saying that President Kennedy had been shot. And watching it through the eyes of the characters of Mad Men is just as traumatic as remembering what happened on September 11th, 2001. Or I imagine if you were someone who was alive during uh, the shooting of President Kennedy, as traumatic as that would have been. Um, and to talk about these characters' relationship to history and this show's meta-relationship to history is to talk about that moment, that moment when your myths were punctured, that moment when your idea of what it was to be an American was shot. Um, and so that brings me to the myth of Camelot. Okay. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. So Camelot is uh, often referred to as the... the the idealistic period of when John F. Kennedy was president, um, which of course alludes to the great British King Arthur, who is the national legend of uh, Britain. And what a lot of people forget or don't know is that the idea of the Kennedys as Camelot, as this great dynasty uh, inheriting the throne of King Arthur, is a myth, is a fiction created by Jackie Kennedy. Um, barely a week after Jack was assassinated, 
uh, Jackie sat down with a, a journalist named Theodore White and gave an interview about uh, what she was feeling. And she talked about how, how much her husband had loved the musical Camelot, which was on Broadway. And he had the record of Camelot and would play it every night and how much he loved uh, the lines of, you know, people will look back many years from now and think on this spot there once stood Camelot. And she likened him to this great idealist, liberal, you know, bastion of hope. And she said, there will be great presidents again, but there will never be another Camelot. And there's something so myth-making about what she did in cementing her husband's legacy as uh, something larger than life that both created in him this untouchable ideal that he never really was. He was great, but he was never that. But also forged in us this palpable sense of loss, this loss of something that we could never get back. And to have seen and witnessed the downfall of that uh, speaks very closely to, I think, what a lot of people were experiencing in this time of great change, of great progress, but also great loss, uh, and that the characters of Mad Men are dealing with at the same time. Betty and Don's relationship falling apart, their perfect life, their perfect domestic life, uh, in the image of this old-fashioned domesticity falling apart, there will never be another Camelot. Wow. Very, very cool. Yeah. Well, it, it, it speaks to what is happening in this show, in particular in the episode where JFK gets assassinated. We have a marriage ritual and ceremony, right. which symbolizes the old giving way to the new. Yeah. We have uh, Betty finally deciding to leave Don, which is another symbol of death, destruction, and rebirth. We have the death of a nation, the episode that we're talking about where JFK gets assassinated. It starts with them in the Madison Avenue, um, you know, of the ad agency and the heat is off yeah. and they're freezing. Yeah. And it starts with them cold. And as soon as that's fixed, suddenly it's instead of it being cold, it's too hot. Everybody's sweating. And to me, this conjures up a few like clear symbolic images. One it's never going to be perfect. You might be in the perfect building in your dream job, but it's never perfect. There's things will always break. Things are always going to break and things are always going to be uncomfortable, but also the fluctuations from cold to hot also kind of symbolize a lot of the relationships we've seen in the show where people are super attractive and really into the lifestyles and really sexually charged and then get super cold to each other as soon as that high wears off. <laughs> There's also this sense of time, right? And this sense of history. Like I I yearn for change. I'm sitting here freezing because things won't change and no one will fix them. And then as soon as change comes, it's too fast. It is shocking how much things change and it's never just right. And when we are at cultural, economic, and political crossroads, we do have the ability to shape and change our lives. And that is the promise of America. And that is where... Mad Men's conflict is seeped in. Should women be able to be equal in this world? Should there be computers in the uh, in the advertising office? 
Should you merge with your competitor so you can be more competitive to get GM's business? Right. All of these things are symbolic of change, of fluctuation, of uncertainty, of not knowing where the next um, phase or the next path or the next right cause is going to come from. And we see plenty of characters who are casualties to this kind of change, who are unable to handle it, and only the characters who can adapt with it survive the series. Yeah, true. And then there is another, I think, uh, other other than its relationship to history, I think it also asks white men, what is your role right. in shaping events? Yeah. And how do you want to shape events, white men? And I think there is a sort of underlining call to action in that don't perpetuate the same cycles that lead to the unhappiness and disenfranchisement of the others. The others being women, women of color, um, minorities. I think it does ask us to be better. If you have privilege and power, you kind of have a responsibility to not be a dick about it. Wow. Okay. So I'm really glad that you said that because I was thinking about this as we were like getting ready to record this podcast today. I was thinking about how white and male this show is. And yes, it does empower two women to very high heights. Um, That I give it some thumbs up on. But some of the things that I struggle with this show frequently and with historical fiction and with... uh, period drama frequently is how much it excuses the ability to get away with telling the uh, story of the white man and his existential struggles. So I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you said that. And I, uh, I, I want us to all kind of begin to interrogate our relationship to white man melancholy uh, because that's a huge part of what this show is about, is the melancholy of white men who have everything, but feel like they don't have everything, or they have everything and they can't hold on to it. So there's sort of a um, a Greek tragic feel, right, to watching these men fly too close to the sun, to watching them go from being born in a uh, in a barn uh, and grow up in a whorehouse to being on the whatever floor of the time life building uh, and then constantly grapple with how difficult it is to hold on to that. But even when they fall, they still have everything like Don Draper. So yeah, I, I want to at least acknowledge it that this show is about people who have everything, right? Yeah. So I think, uh, so a few things that I think are worth fleshing out there. Cause I'm, I'm, I think I'm in lockstep with you here. I think it's of note that the American mythic narrative is that you can start from small, humble beginnings and make it to the top. The idea that there is no actual social class, that social hierarchies are built upon merit and not upon birth, is the promise of America. It's what draws people to this country. It's the thing we tell ourselves that we are. Anyone can make it here in America. In reality, what we show is Don suppresses his past. He suppresses the fact that he is in many ways kind of that self-made man, but he denies that narrative rather for the narrative of I was and am and of elite. And what we see in Sterling, Cooper, Campbell, a lot of the other characters of the show, that they were born rich. 
It was expected for them to maintain high positions of prominence and status. They went to the best schools, right? They had the great fraternity connections. And because of that, they're in there in a community of a small group of elite men who are running major things, whether that's how we're going to advertise Coca-Cola to who's going to be president are all of the things that we see that this group of men are. So in, to me, it exposes the idea that if you really want to be in this upper stratosphere, you really want to be these top, top, top influential movers and shakers in America, you have to suppress your poor history and pretend that you were always here. Because the only way you get there is because you were always there, because your father was there and his father was there. And it sort of upends this, this American myth. Now, this American myth is also deeply linked to maleness. It's a, yes. for yeah. men, about men. It was written by men. By written, I mean the myth about American pull your shelf up from the bootstraps. I was just going to say. To the Constitution. Boots for women are never made with bootstraps, just like our pants never have real pockets in them. So yes, it is linked very much in maleness. And of course it's linked in whiteness because this is a country built on the backs of slaves. Um, But it is very interesting that Don is only successful because he uh, succeeds in erasing his true past. And his great fall when he's finally fired from Sterling Cooper is when he lets slip the authenticity of his past in a public manner. He's in a pitch and he tells people that he grew up in a whorehouse. And that is the tipping point. It's not the alcoholism. It's, it's not, not the, the alcohol- womanism. Yeah. That's bad. Because he's been doing it this entire time. He's always been self-destructive. But you told Hershey that you grew up in a whorehouse, dude. So yeah, you really can't be And that anymore. you bought Hershey bars with money from John's pockets. So yes, there's this very real um, you know, sense that success, at least in this era or in this form, comes from the erasure of authenticity or the erasure of your past. Um, One of the things that I uh, started to research when I knew you were going to talk about the great man theory tonight, which is so fascinating when it comes to madmen, because Don is only a great man if you look at Madison Avenue is a microcosm of America because in the great scheme of things in this cosmos in just a country, he's no one, right? He's got a modicum of infamy for writing this New York times letter about why he's quitting tobacco. Uh, he's no one. He's just an ad guy, but in this microcosm, he is the face of Sterling Cooper. He's the international man of mystery. Um, but I started to research other theories of history. And when you had talked about the great man, I thought, of course, about Nietzsche's Ubermensch. And I was like, where does this take me? And it took me to an essay that Nietzsche has called The Uses and Abuses of History for Life, where he lays out three different uh, senses of history that I think intersect with madmen perfectly. And these three senses are first monumental. So very much the great man theory. It's the idea that heroism and greatness are what creates history. And by looking to them, by looking to the glories of Rome, or by looking to the American Revolution, 
we can stir in ourselves this idea that we can be great in the future. So it is a future-minded theory of history that looks to the greatness of our nature in the past, in the heroes, in the heroic and great times, and propels us forward. Now we can see that because we interact in, with madmen through media with great men like John F. Kennedy or Neil Armstrong landing on the moon and these massive and momentous times for humanity and for America. Another uh, sense that Nietzsche lays out is antiquarian, which is a very narrow-minded narrow approach to history that overvalues anything old just because it's old. So this is this old-fashioned, nostalgic sense of history. If you and I... That's my grandmother antiquing. Yeah, if you, if you antique and you buy things just because they're old, or if you go to Colonial Williamsburg a lot, or you and I were talking about going to City Tavern for dinner tomorrow night, which is this colonial uh, restaurant in Philadelphia where they serve up colonial beers and recipes, we're engaging with our antiquarian love of history. But when we look to that, there's not much that we truly gain from this antiquarianism. We're just looking at it for what it is without looking to the future, without looking to what it means to us. And then there's a third type of history that Nietzsche lays out called critical, uh, which essentially says that we're engaging with the past in order to interrogate it, in order to pick out the good and pick out the bad and separate them and move forward with what's good and leave what's bad in the past, which sounds all well and good when you say it, but that leads to a rewriting, an unconscious rewriting and erasure of history. So we have characters throughout this series that exemplify you know, all the different realms of this, all the different senses of history. You would think of Betty and Pete Campbell as antiquarians because Pete Campbell's name goes back through history and gives him clout. Betty is old-fashioned and she relies on the sort of 50s mindset. She relies on appearances to look as good as possible and have this pedigree. This monumental history uh, of great men is something that we can align with Burke Cooper or uh, Roger Sterling. They look to great men of the past to see what's in the future, but they probably don't look at the bad parts. They only look at the good. But then this critical history lines up with Don. He writes a future for himself going forward by taking what was great about the dog tags that he switched with Don Draper, but he erases all of Dick Whitman. And here's the thing. The things that made him Dick Whitman, which we see through his relationship with Anna Draper, made him a good man. And by erasing those things, we erased the things that were good about that character. That's why we wind up with a lush who's an adulterer, who's misogynistic, who's narcissistic, who is abusive to his wife, who is neglectful of his children. You need to hold on to, so forgive me for saying this, you got to hold on to your dick. <laughs> you can't let go of your dick. So only by oh, brilliant, only by combining these three senses of history, only by like embracing the past for what it can give us just because it's who we once were, and maybe by idealizing it a little bit to look forward, but also by interrogating it, can we 
move toward the future with any sense of authenticity and truth. So if we even look at the Kennedys with this, we can't over-idealize Kennedy, but we can say he was great and we can be great in the future. We just have to be honest with our history. And I think that's a huge part of what Mad Men is saying about this, this moment of cultural history in the 60s, is we have to be honest about the things that we did that were shitty, but we also can't erase them. We have to hold on to our dick. I love that. You know, and I think of as we examine what it means to watch Mad Men from the lens of what is Mad Men saying about American history, what it's saying about holding on to our dick, (laughs) (laughs) is that, you know, all of the historical events that we witness on the show, they have a tremendous uh, impact on the people. Interestingly enough, the show never gives into the temptation to make the history happening the most important plot point. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's the people in their lives and how they react, which ultimately determines the history. And what I think it ultimately says about history is that history is thus shaped by the present and what we, the non-great men, determine it to mean. And I think that is its theory on history that we are living in it under its shadow while participating in it. And there are great, great men slash women, because I don't want to be gender and gender non-conforming that are out there shaping and holding it. There are the Barack Obamas and I hate to say it, Donald Trump's. Yep. Not that he's terrible. Yes. But he's more like Voldemort (laughs) than he is like Harry Potter. But you know, like, but Donald Trump's that are that are holding the reins of history, it may seem, but ultimately what we do with what is happening, how we interact with the events that are happening will determine the next events. One great lesson I got from studying history for as many years as I did came from a great professor of ancient history at Temple University. And he drew on the chalkboard all words. He would he would put not all words, but he would all the words of social science. He yeah. put economy. He'd put philosophy. He'd put psychology. That and then in the center he'd put history. And he would just ask us at the start of the class, "What's the difference between all these words?" And it's funny because I'm in the senior level history class, and not a single one of us could determine or ask Ooh. or say what it meant. Ooh. And he would circle all the words as we got to a definition that was close. And we'd have this gigantic mess of words with overlapping circles. And he said, history connects them all because it asks what causes events. And what links psychology to sociology to economics to philosophy is the glue of history because it asks what causes events. My final thought here for you, Midnight Myth listeners What are you doing to cause events? Because you have more power than you ever realized. You could be a Peggy. You could be a Betty. I, it's amazing. I, I think that's amazing. Um, I want to close tonight by, by quoting, uh, my favorite character from Mad Men in the episode we've been referencing all night, the grownups, Uh, which is the episode in which the JFK assassination takes place and Margaret Sterling gets married. That's Joan Holloway. 
who talks, or Joan Harris at this point, who talks about how her husband is at the hospital because people are still getting sick, car accidents are happening, babies are being born. Because in the shadow of the so-called great monumental moments of history, life goes on. And in the end, what really is history? Is it the string of biographies of great men? Or is it a tapestry of weddings, meals shared, babies being born, a complex web of memories that contain every possible emotion, a twinge of pain, the pain from an old wound? What is it in the end? Before we end officially, real quick Midnight Myth Boomerang, who's your favorite Mad Men character? It could be like the 30-second why. So I, I think I just gave it away in saying that it's Joan, but uh, it is Joan, and Peggy is a very close second because I do love the women on this show and the meteoric rises that they take. Uh, for me, Joan exemplifies what it means, uh, almost like Sansa in our episode where we talked about how uh, you know easy it is to have woman characters uh, gain empowerment by casting off their femininity and Joan is the you know archetypical woman who embraces her femininity and never compromises her goals. The fact that she wants true love in her life and also to be a career superstar and becomes the woman who gets to have it all. And I like to see that, and I appreciate that she had to work for it, and she had to go through a lot for it, and I, uh, I think she came out stronger in the end. So that's why I love her as the antithesis to the, uh, to the thesis that women can't have it all. That's awesome. I, I will do yeah. mine as well. Please. Mine's also Joan <laughs> for a totally different reason. We're going to have to Don't, do a character study. Your reason is great. My reason or my love for Joan is the same reason I'm on team Captain America. I like moral characters, right? Yeah. I like characters that push come to shove will do the right thing. Even when they're being forced to do the wrong thing all the time. And Joan, to me, is the most moral character of Mad Men. She is, yeah. She's the one that does the least shitty things. The least harm. <laughs> She's the one that does the most good things. She's the one that helps the most people. Sometimes she thinks she's helping people, but she might also be participating in a system of harmful patriarchy. But it's not motivated to participate in that system. It's motivated to help people, like what she tells Peggy to go on a diet. Or, you know, put a paper bag over her head. <laughs> but she, deal, she deals yeah. with the, the more adversity more gracefully than yeah. any other character on the show. Absolutely. And comes out better, stronger, wiser. And while most of the characters, they grow, but a lot of them are still in similar ruts. To me, Joan is the one that, like you said, she gets to have it all. And I feel she's the one that deserves to have it all. Yeah. I think we're probably going to have to do a character study. And or a few. I think we might have to do a little deep dive into Joan. Gentlemen, ladies, and other friends beyond the binary. Until next time, be, be kind. kind.